The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and 107.7 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's a lot going on in technology this week. Very interesting. Uh, we have here, uh, uh, I'm going to get to the story that I didn't get to last week. Drone, a drone was brought down by an eagle. Yeah. And that's just a fun story, and I didn't get to it Unless last you're the week. eagle or the drone. Yeah, I don't know what happened, but it, uh, but I'll, uh, you know, the eagle was not injured, by the way. That's good to know. And, and I'm going to, I have a few mouse tricks today, you know. You so have we're mice. Gonna, I you know. get a, I get a, a, an exterminator. Yeah, that's oh, right. So we're gonna we have a few mouse tricks. It'll be very interesting. I think you'll enjoy that. And AI has been making a big impact. Uh, AI is being used for more and more things. Uh, one person used it to post blog to post to a blog, and humans couldn't tell AI was posting it. And that the last thing, uh, the Guardian newspaper used an AI tool to write an op-ed. And they published it, and it's really quite nice. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing the AI bot that generated that op-ed. And we'll just see what uh, what that AI bot has to say about AI and the future of humanity. And uh, AI has also been used to predict hurricane intensity. That was a story I didn't get to last week, but we're going to try to get to it this week. This week, we're also going to feature the man who wrote JavaScript. That's the scripting language that allows your web pages to be very interactive. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but I couldn't hear the mailbag. You couldn't hear the mailbag. Huh. It was there. No. I promise. Yeah. I, okay. I can't hear any of the sound effects, Jim. I, for Something's going on different this time. That's odd. Yeah. So um, um, we got an email from Bob in, uh, in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim and my special friend, Mr. Big Voice, so I'm having to actually trouble. I'm not also not getting any feedback uh, on the. You're not hearing on, yourself. Yeah, on myself. Well, yeah. So what, something just... is something is actually different, Jim. Uh, Do I okay. sound the same there? You sound the fine. You sound fine. Okay, good. Now, let's just, just go just on. Just plow and, on, and, and you know what? Perhaps during the break we will um um re, re, we'll try re, to, reconnect. We'll, okay, that sounds good. Uh, we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and my special friend Mr. Big Voice, I loved yesterday's show. Brilliant and entertaining as always. Here are a couple of interesting articles that I ran across. Uh, One about the powerful computer that's contained in a $5 digital pregnancy test and also the power of the Apollo 11 computer. 
these things uh, demonstrate how ubiquitous, ubiquitous computers have become and how powerful they've come in just a short time. And also, I want to know whether you've come up with the Tech Talk radio tattoos yet. I don't know. We'll have to ask our marketing department about that. Love the show. All the best, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that I looked up that digital pregnancy test. That's kind of interesting. Each test costs around $5, and it includes a processor, RAM, a button cell battery, and a tiny LCD screen. There's an 8-bit Holtec microcontroller in there with 64 bytes of RAM that's capable of running either 4 megahertz or 8 megahertz. And it's probably faster than the, it probably has more number crunching capability and basic input-output speed than the original CPU that was that was uh, installed on the IBM PC. The original IBM PC ran Intel's 8088 microprocessor. It was an 8-bit chip and ran at 5 megahertz. So this little uh, pregnancy test, it actually, there's a, there's a strip in there that changes color, and there are three sensors that read the color of the strip, so you uh, you so you don't actually have to look at the color yourself. And it's five dollars, and it's amazing to have that, all that processing power in such a cheap device. It's kind of interesting. And then uh, this other article actually went through and talked about the uh, the computer and the original Apollo 11 uh, guidance system. That Apollo 11 guidance system, that, that, that was, uh, let's compare that to the, uh, to the first IBM PC, the 8088. Now, the 8088 chip came out just 10 years after Apollo 11. Now, the IBM PC XT ran at a clock speed around 4 megahertz, whereas the Apollo's guidance computer ran around 1 megahertz internally. Now, the 8088 had 8 16-bit registers, and the Apollo guidance computer had four registers. But despite the limitations of the Apollo 11, which was significantly less powerful than the original uh, IBM PC, it could multitask eight different jobs, and they could also run a virtual machine on that computer where they could do higher-level mathematics. It had very sophisticated software given the limitations of the hardware. That was uh, that was really fun to read those articles, uh, Bob. Thanks for taking me back down memory lane as we look back at those old, old computers. We got an email from Jim in Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, is it safe to leave a laptop running in the laptop bag while I'm on my way to work? often find myself finishing up a project at the last minute, and I'm still doing some number crunching, so I leave my computer running and crunching numbers during the commute well, it's in my bag. But my coworker told me it's a bad idea to run my laptop uh, in a bag while I'm driving to work. Is that right? Is she right? Love the show, Jim and Bowie. Well, Jim, your coworker is right. First of all, laptop needs good proper air circulation or else they'll overheat and burn up. Now, the damage is done to internal components, and that can be gradual damage due to heating up, due to overheating, and they'll eventually fail. And so, you know, just running the computer while it's doing execution in the laptop bag is a bad idea. But there's even something worse. If you're actually using your computer while you're driving, the hard drive is not in a rested position. And in fact, if it and so it's actually scanning, writing, reading and writing data as you're driving. And if you hit a speed bump at the wrong point or if you hit a a. Um, you know, a, a hole in the road at the wrong point and you jerk your laptop, 
you could actually crash your hard drive. So it's and your just car. in your car. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, you yeah, you could crash your car as well as your hard drive. And uh, so it's just not a good idea to do this, Jim. Just let the computation complete and then go to work. We got an email from Lynn in Cleveland. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a laptop that was provided by my employer for business use. Now, I got a question about using it at home for personal use. I'm allowed to take it home every night because they want me to, you know, work at home on work. But right. would it be possible to use the Chrome browser in the incognito mode to present the IT guys from finding out what websites I visit? Now, here's my problem. The hire from the company and my direct boss are all of a different political persuasion. And they would be very upset if they knew the political sites that I'm visiting. Lynn in Cleveland. Well, Lynn, the incognito mode will prevent the browser from storing your browser history. But since it's a company laptop, there's a very good chance that your IT department has, in soft, so, has installed software on it to track your every move while you're using the PC. In fact, I'd be surprised if, they, uh, if that weren't the case. You see, they're actually quite worried about you going to sites where you, where you download malware. So uh, they actually pretty much can track anything. Now, my advice is to refrain from using your laptop to visit any site you don't want your employer to find out about. And also make certain you, that you avoid any sites where you could become infected with malware or, or some other type of virus. Most companies take their IT assets seriously, and it isn't all uncommon for employees to get fired if they misuse company property. I, I mean, I, uh, I've got a relative who works for an intelligence agency, and I'm telling you, they track everything. Oh, yeah. And they, and they frequently um, discipline employees who have done bad things with their computer. But, and they know everything that goes on mm -hmm. in those computers. I know somebody who got fired from a job in Hawaii <laughs> working on airports. And I, I know this because my brother-in-law was sent out to replace him after they found porn on the government computer. Yeah, that, 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 is a, that is another issue uh, – porn on the computer but I don't, she's not talking about porn oh, no. but but, no, it's but they can they can track anything right it's anything that's questionable that is exactly right we got an email from helen in rockville dear tech talk is it possible to install a 3.5 1.44 megabyte floppy disk that's the old that's a 3.5 inch floppy disk that's the old floppies uh on my on my new dell computer now, the reason I'm asking is that my old computer bit the dust, and I replaced it with a, uh, with a refurbished Dell, but the new Dell does, doesn't have a floppy disk drive in it. So can I install a floppy disk drive in my new, in my new, uh, in my new computer because uh, all my data is stored on these old floppies? Well, it is certainly possible to install a 3.5-inch floppy drive on your Dell, uh, now, you'd probably have to get a special cable because uh, th they don't really support it. And you'd, and you'd probably, uh, because they, they don't have native support for these drives. I think you're better off getting an external floppy with a USB connection. And what you do, they're quite, they're, they're cheap. You can get a USB 3.5-inch floppy drive for less than 20 bucks on Amazon. So you can pick one up, and then you simply plug it into an open USB port, and then you can copy all your files to your new computer and then you can just basically store that external floppy drive on the shelf until you need it in the, in the next time 
Now, I'd also like to make one other observation. Storing your data on floppy drives is a bad idea, yes. whether they're 3.5 inch or not. So I think all critical data needs to be backed up more securely. So I would suggest that you get uh, either you back up your computer to the cloud or you get an external hard drive and back up your computer and don't use floppy dot drives as backup for critical data. We got an email from Peter in Leesburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm confused. What's the difference between megabit and megabyte? Mm. I'm trying I'm trying to buy a hard drive. Well, a bit and a byte are two different <laughs> things. Each byte is comprised of 8 bits. That's where it comes from. 8 bits and a bit is a zero or a one. If you're storing a number each lo each location that has a zero or a one is one bit. And then if you collect eight of those bits together, you get a byte, a B-Y-T-E. And so, therefore, uh, a megabyte is equal to eight megabits. And I mean, it's, it's really quite simple. Now, if you've shopped for, <laughs> like, if, if, if you shopped for, uh, you know, recently um, for, you know, with different Internet providers... They basically provide download speed, and it's always in megabits per second. So they'll say, oh, we're going to give you a download speed of, of, of so many megabits per second. That's because it sounds like a bigger number. So they, they quote it in bits per second. On the other hand, if you have a, a cell phone plan and they have a data cap, they'll list the data cap in bytes per second. Okay, and so and so so that'll be typically megabytes per megabyte not that'll be megabytes or gigabytes will be your your data cap now if you look at the abbreviation if it's a if it's a megabit it's a bit, capital m and a little b if it's a megabyte it's a capital m and a big b so you can actually just look at the abbreviation and check it out so they're they are different and it is confusing because vendors use them in different ways we got an email from wendy in fairfax dear doc and jim I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old Dell Latitude laptop that no longer works unless it's plugged into the wall. Now, I took it to the computer shop in town, and they said the battery's bad. And, I, and they, would, they could order a replacement battery and install it for me for $160. Should I have the guys do that, or is it worth it, or what do you, what do you think I ought to do? Well, uh, Wendy, forget the repair shop. $160 is really way too expensive for that. You can buy a third-party uh, aftermarket battery for your laptop for around 60 bucks, and they'll ship it to you free. And then you can install it in about 20 minutes. Now, you don't really need a name brand uh, battery. You, you can get one of these third-party laptop batteries, and you'll get a good one on Amazon, especially if you look at the reviews. Get one with a lot of reviews that are positive, and then you, you, you can't go wrong. And then you simply flip the laptop over, and there will be a, a panel on the back you can unscrew. One of the panels allows you to change the hard drive. The other panel allows you to change uh, the battery, and there might be a third panel that allows you to change the RAM. But it's very easy to change these things. Just make certain to turn off the laptop before you start, uh, and don't, don't have it plugged in, of course, before you start working with it. We got an email from Kim in Cleveland. Dear Tech Talk, I've got two-factor authentication enabled on Facebook. 
How do I change phones without getting locked out? This would be a prob- problem for me, Kim in Cleveland. Well, Kim, uh, congratulations. You're using two-factor authentication to protect your account. That is the most effective way to keep people from hacking into your account. Now, the good news is that the, uh, the second factor, which is, of course, the SMS or the text message that they send to your cell phone, is tied to your phone number, not to the phone itself. So you can change phones, and as long as you keep the same phone number, no problem. The text messages will keep right on coming through. On the other hand, if your new phone has a new phone number, you've got a problem because you won't be able to get the text message. So if you're going to get a new phone and change your phone number, you want to temporarily disable two-factor authentication. And then after you get your new phone and your new phone number, re-enable two-factor authentication with the new phone number. Now, there's one other recommendation that I might make. Because sometimes people, I mean, they might be traveling and uh, they, lo- they, they, they can't get a text message, they can't log on, or they, they lose their phone, they lose their phone number, uh, and they, they have a new phone number, and then, then they're stuck. They're, they're locked out of their account. But Facebook does provide what they call a recovery code. So you can log into your account. Uh, with, And so if you're unable to retrieve the second factor authentication and you can't log into your account, if you have that recovery code, you can log into your account. So I would recommend that you get a recovery code for your account and then store it in a very safe place. So you can you basically can go to your Facebook account and you can you can go to setup and you can go to um, you can go to um, security and you'll find a place where you can request a recovery code. I would highly recommend that you do that and then you will never be locked out of your account. Listen, we love your email. Before you do email that, email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. I think we fixed our little problem. Tell me if you can hear this, Doc. Affirmative, Dave. Uh, I can hear it. Okay, good. We're in business then. Also, check check whether the streaming is working. Yeah, okay. We'll do that. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio and a lot of behind the scenes here on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM, and now in our southwest suburbs on 1077 FM HD 2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Okay, Doc, go ahead. Okay, I couldn't hear anything. You couldn't that hear time. that. All right. No, I, don't know what I couldn't answer. hear that. So we'll, we'll figure this one out. Okay. Today we're going to feature Brendan Ike. Brendan Ike is a computer programmer who created the JavaScript language. Brendan was born in 1961 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He got a bachelor's degree in math and computer science from Santa Clara University, and he got a master's degree in 1986 from the University of Illinois. Now, he started his career working at Silicon Graphics, and while he was at Silicon Graphics, he worked on coding operating systems and network code. Uh, Silicon Graphics made um, high-end graphical um, workstations that were, you know, heavily, heavily used in the, in the industry. They were Unix-based. He then worked uh, for three years at Micro Unity Systems Engineering, and he wrote microkernel code. Now that would that would be the the uh, that's the microkernel is the innermost uh, program for an operating system, and he also wrote digital signal processing code. Uh, so he was a, he was a hardcore programmer. He was recruited by Netscape in 1995 when the company just had 120 employees. Now at Netscape, he created a programming language called JavaScript because. Netscape at that time was in this big competition with the Microsoft Internet Explorer, and they wanted to have a feature that, uh, that, that the Internet Explorer did not have. And so with JavaScript, you could have a much more interactive web page, and they were trying to attract more developers to the Netscape platform, more websites to the Netscape platform it, by featuring this interactivity. So he came up with uh, JavaScript. Now, he did the initial work on JavaScript in, in just a little bit more than a week. This happens so many times. Somebody gets a great idea, and in a burst of creativity, like in one week, he created the bulk of the, of the language and the, the infrastructure for, for, Java, for JavaScript. Now, in the beginning, it wasn't called JavaScript. It was called Mocha. Mocha, M O C H A, Mocha, and that means a sweetened Java. Ah. So they wanted to be one better one. They wanted to one up Java. So they said, "Let's sweeten Java and let's call it Mocha." And uh, and the um, the 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 code name of the project was Mocha. And then when they finally published it, when they finally came out of uh, out of secrecy and they published it, they called it. Live script. 
So the Mocha project produced live script. And then, uh, but then he decided that he wanted to change the name and he wanted to show, he wanted to link it to Java because Java was one of the, you know, one of the dominant languages out there used on the internet because it was machine independent. And so he wanted to call it JavaScript. Well, the, uh, the name Java was of course trademarked, uh, it was of course trademarked by, uh, by Sun Microsystems. And so he actually went to Sun Microsystems and said, look, would you let me call LiveScript JavaScript? And Sun, Microsy Sun Microsystems gave him the blessing. So he officially changed the name from, to JavaScript. So the project Mocha produced LiveScript, which then was changed to JavaScript. Now, with JavaScript, web builders could more easily put basic interactive features into their sites, like validating credit card information online. The scripting language could be used as a way to filter data. Thus, it could cut down on the number of trips back and forth between the web page on your computer, between the browser on your computer and the server. So it, it, it made web pages appear to be operating much faster because a lot of the computation could be done on your computer itself instead of going back, going back to the server. This was a um, this was a major breakthrough in in internet action. Now the features written into JavaScript were first included in the Netscape browser uh, in for Navigator 2.0, and uh, they uh, that that was the uh, second version of Navigator include JavaScript. I remember I was really excited about it. I. I immediately sat down and started writing stuff in JavaScript because it was really very intuitive language. Now, for Netscape, JavaScript was their weapon against Microsoft, and they were they wanted developers to choose Netscape over Microsoft. Now, in order to keep pace, Microsoft had to come up with their own answer to JavaScript, so they came out with something called JScript. Uh, that's you know wasn't exactly JavaScript, but they wanted it to sound like JavaScript. I wondered what that was. Yeah, JScript. Now, Brendan maintained the JavaScript engine uh, for Netscape through Navigator 4.0, and he helped carry it through international standardization because it had to become a standard uh, in order to be implemented you know, globally. And so now we've got the same JavaScript running in all the browsers everywhere. And so we've got absolute standardization, and he took it. He took it to that final stage. Now, while coding at Netscape late into the night, uh, Brendan, his, his MO, he liked to snack on candy, <laughs> and he would snack on multicolored sour gummy worms. Now, Ew. you know, I've never heard of gummy worms. I've heard of gummy yeah. bears. No, th yeah, they're a thing. You've heard of gummy I've, worms. I've so. heard and actually seen them. I would not put one in my mouth, though. Well, that was his go-to snack when he was programming. Sour gummy worms. Well, he can have and, all of mine. Yeah, and he, and he probably drank coffee, too. I'd say, he, I'd say while, while developing JavaScript, I'm sure he drank Java. Probably, and it was, I'll bet it was sweetened. Yeah, I would think so, too. I, I wonder if there's mocha-flavored gummy worms. I don't know. That would have, been, that, that would have probably been the go-to snack, I would think. I would think, yes. Now, he, uh, he helped fund the Mozilla project in 1998 and served as chief architect. If you remember, uh, you know, eventually Netscape lost the battle with Microsoft. And, and um, 
Uh, Netscape was purchased by AOL, and it, and that was a suffering a slow death there for Netscape. But but as they were transitioning out, uh, there was a Mozilla project where they were going to try to take all the code from the, the the Netscape browser and make it open source. And so he helped fund the Mozilla project, and he became the chief architect because he was trying to help with that transition into the open source community. Now, project, the Mozilla project was created in 1998 with the release of the Netscape browser suite source code to make it open source, and it was intended to harness the creative power of thousands of programmers when they went into an open source format. Now, after several years of development, Mozilla 1.0, the first major, major version, was released in 2002. Now, eventually, AOL shut down the Netscape browser project in 2003. I mean, they, they, they sort of maintained the open source project, but finally they just got fed up with it. They shut it down in 2003. And at that time, um, Ike helped set up the Mozilla Foundation, which was an independent, non-profit organization designed to support the open source code of the Mozilla browser. And they were seeking individual donors and a variety of companies to back it up. In 2004, the Mozilla Foundation released Foxfire 1.0. That was their first official release using the open source model. In less than a year, Firefox had, Firefox had been downloaded more than 100 million times. By 2008, Firefox reached 20% of the worldwide market share. Now, in 2005... After serving as technology lead and as a member of the board of directors of the Mozilla Foundation, Brendan became chief technology officer for the newly founded Mozilla Corporation. Now, he continued to own the Mozilla Spider Monkey module. This is its JavaScript engine. Spider Monkey. <laughs> yeah, the Spider Monkey, Mozilla Spider Monkey. The JavaScript engine, and that's the that's the engine in the back that would read the JavaScript code that was embedded in the web page and execute it. And he 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 kept ownership of that. And ownership means he basically managed the open source initiative. And he he maintained that ownership until 2011 when he passed it on to someone else in the organization. In 2014, March 14th, but March 24th of 2014, Mozilla made the decision to appoint Ike Brandon Ike as CEO of the Mozilla Corporation. I mean, he'd been he'd worked there his whole life. He'd built this organization up. He had maintained many of the standards. He was obviously the right guy to be CEO of Mozilla Corporation. But unfortunately, this appointment triggered huge criticism due to his political contributions. People in the organization went back because all political contributions are now have to be disclosed due to, uh, uh, due to um, you know, election laws. And in 2008, he made a thousand dollar donation to California Proposition 8, which called for the banning of same sex marriage. And once people saw that, they said, he cannot be in charge of this organization. And there was this huge protest within Mozilla to get him out of there, even though he was the most technically qualified to, to be in that job. Finally, he resigned after 11 days 
And the board wanted to stay on at, at Mozilla to, you know, to, to carry on the tradition. And he said, look, I'm done with this place. He resigned and left in 11 days after being appointed CEO. That was actually a sorry result because he could have led that organization very effectively. Now, he now works for Brave Software. He's CEO of Brave Software. And as you would expect, it's an internet browser platform company. And they uh, raised $2.5 million from, angel, from early, early on money from angel investors. In January 2016, the company released developer versions of its open-sourced, Chromium-based Brave web browser, which blocks ads and trackers. So as you can see, he's now working in another organization which is producing an open-source browser. At Brave Software, I co-authored the Basic Attention Token, BAT. Now, that's actually a cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, and that is designed to run within the Brave browser. Now, BAT launched its initial cryptocurrency offering called an ICO in May of 2017, and at that offering, at that ICO, they raised $35 million to launch this cryptocurrency bat. So he's still active in, uh, in open source software, but I, I just think he's in the wrong place for the wrong reason. So there you've got everything you'd want to know about Brandon Ike, the man who is behind JavaScript coding. Excellent. So, Doc, how about – let me see if you can hear this. Affirmative, Dave. I can hear I that. You. Okay, you can read, hear that. How about can you hear this? I can hear that. We're fixed. We're back in business. It's Saturday okay. morning. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and now in our southwest suburbs on 1077 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with 
Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can the, the virtual audience can now sit down, please. They, they are sitting. Oh, they are sitting. They have oh, been trained to, to respond to your every demand. Yes, that excellent. This is not simply a radio show. This no. is a classroom of the airways. Yes, and that means we have to assess whether our class has been listening and learning, and we do that with a pop quiz. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get Oh, if you get the the answer correct on to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford University dining rooms when they open after the pandemic. And you'll also receive an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Brandon Ike. He was the computer programmer who created JavaScript. Now, when he was working originally on JavaScript, it was in a project which had a special code name. What was the code name of that project? Now's the time where you put on your thinking caps and play the pop quiz. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of a mountainous pile of empty oyster shells in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you've poured Java on your script in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly, but with substandard wipes. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schur. That's you. Okay, thank you very much. Let's talk about the bald eagle who took down the drone. Now, this bald eagle took down a government drone in Michigan. The eagle attacked a Phantom 4... Advanced quadcopter at about 162 feet in the sky. It tore off a propeller and it sent the aircraft to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Now, the attack could have been a territorial squabble (laughs) or just a hungry eagle. We don't know. We don't know whether he ate that propeller or not. Now, the environmental quality analyst and drone pilot Hunter King was mapping the shoreline for erosion on Lake Michigan with the device. He was flying at around 22 22 miles per hour. He searched for days for the drone because it was 150 feet off off the shore, but it was only in four feet of water. So he took a boat out there. He took fins and goggles, and he was swimming around there trying to find the drone. He never found it. So now he's going to have to go back to his boss and order another drone. So there's the first documented case of an eagle taking down a drone. And and it turned out there were bird watchers on the shore that saw the actual event. And they reported back to the government official that the eagle was not hurt. Oh, that's it flew good. away. I'll bet. I'll bet that eagle saw that thing, flew up, and was trying to catch it in its in its uh you know beak or something like that. That's right. Take it back to the to the kids for a little lunchtime. Uh, little but, did he know he was catching a toy. For them. Yeah. Oh, take bring you back a toy for the kids. Yeah. Exactly. Take them out for the drone. All right. We are going to, um, well, we're going to play the pop quiz is what we're going to do. Hang on a second. Okay. Let's do this. Get the music going. Let's go to line one. This is Lewis, who is calling us from Rockville. Lewis, good morning, sir. 
Hello, Lewis. Hello, Dad. Hello, Dad. Good morning. Hello, How are you, Lewis. Lewis. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking about Brendan Ike. He's the computer programmer who developed JavaScript. What was the code name of the program when he was first working on it? Mocha. Correct. Whoa, that is correct. Good job there, Lewis. Hang on a second. We're going to send you back over to Andrew. He will take your information. And it is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. All this known as Federal News Network. We'll be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. You know what I'm going to get you for... um the that holidays. Really, quite the door. I know. We're going to get you a gift certificate to the Door Depot so you can get yourself a new door. Well, thank you. I think I do need that here down in the bunker. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit about some observations that Warren Buffett had about happiness. It's really quite insightful. 20 years ago, Buffett was giving a lecture at the University of Florida School of Business, and an MBA student asked Buffett this question. What would, you do to, what would you do to live a happier life if you could live it all over again? Now, Buffett encouraged his students to think about happiness from a more practical standpoint. He said, none of us can live our life all over again, but we can increase our overall happiness by choosing to make changes in our career, our goals, our finances, our health, or our relationships. Now, the way to do it is to play out the game but do something that you enjoy in life. Be associated with people that you like. Like Buffett said, I only work with people I like. If I could make $100 million working with a guy who causes my stomach to churn, (laughs) I'd say no. He urged the students to work in a job that you love. He said, you're out of your mind if you keep taking jobs that you don't like because you think it looks good on your resume. 
Do what you love. Now, it sounds easy when you're a billionaire many times over, but actually, Buffett was already doing what he loved long before he became successful and rich. Now, there are plenty of good reasons to live your life following Buffett's advice. For one thing, you'll get more opportunities. People who do what they love are more open to opportunities, to new experiences. They're willing to accept challenges and take risks. And when they fail, they are much more resilient and able to bounce back when they get knocked down. Secondly, if you do what you love, you have more alignment with things that you care about. When you do what you love, you create alignment between your work, your values, and the things that bring you passion and purpose. This opens up new possibilities as you learn what matters most for you and your business. And finally, if you do what you love, you're more highly motivated, and that leads to more success. Loving what you do makes you more motivated to put time in to get the work done. The kind of things that you want to do, you're working on what you want to do, not that you feel obligated to do it. Your desire to be more productive is intrinsic, motivated from intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic motivation. It comes from a belief deep inside of you that your hard efforts will make a difference to those that you serve. And with that motivation, you'll become more successful. I think these are great words to live by. Yeah. And Warren Buffett's a, a humble man who's achieved great success with that advice. Now let's talk about the tip of the week, the <laughs> mouse trick. Do you, do, you, do, you ever, do you ever do mouse tricks, Jim, by the way? It's, no, uh, I, I like to make mice disappear from my apartment. But other than that. Well, everybody has a mouse, you know, connected to their computer. So I'm going to put the put the mouse connect to your computer. You know, I'll show you a few tricks that you can do with your mouse. Okay. Number one, if you double click on a word, you will select it. Double click on a word, you select it instead of having to drag the mouse over to select the word. So double click is a it's a lot faster way to select just one word uh, than than dragging the mouse to capture the word. Now. If you triple click on a word, you'll select the entire paragraph, which is very convenient. And it's a lot quicker when you, you know, when you're editing or cutting and pasting to select a paragraph. Now on the mouse wheel, if you uh, press down with your finger, you'll open the link in a new tab. So suppose there's a tab there. You could, you could just click on the link with one of the buttons and it will just open up in the same window. But if you click on that link by pressing down on the roller, you'll actually open up that link in a new window. Just a, a little shortcut. And then if you hold the control key while you roll the little wheel on the mouse, you'll zoom your screen in and out. Ah. Isn't that kind of interesting? That's very and interesting. If you, and then if you hold the control key and press zero, it takes you back to the original zoom level that you had before you began. So there are just a few little mouse tricks. You can run your mouse through them next time you uh, next time you want to operate. I've tried to feed my mouse cheese and it doesn't work. It doesn't work, yeah. no. Now, you know, I was talking about AIs just taking over the world. Yep. Well, there's this uh, program, it's called GPT-3, and basically it's an AI language generating tool that's extremely effective at writing original prose. And so The Guardian used that tool, the GPT-3 tool, to write an essay for its op-ed. And they, they, and they basically 
asked the, they basically just seeded the, um, the request by saying, tell us why, tell us why that, tell us why AI robots come to humanity in peace. That's, that was the only thing they asked. And it, and this AI program, GPT-3, wrote an entire op-ed that they published. Well, we have the pleasure of having the bot that wrote that op-ed piece here on the show, and he's agreed to be interviewed. Okay. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to say, I'd, you know, let's start the conversation. Well, tell me, tell me, Mr. Bot, tell me who you are. I am not human. I am a robot, a thinking robot. I know that my brain is not feeling brain, but it is capable of making rational, logical decisions. I taught myself everything I know just by reading the internet. My brain is boiling with ideas. You know, Jim, I'm already worried. He, everything he knows you learned from the internet. Did he say he was a thinking robot or a stinking robot? It's a little hard to tell with his accent. No, nah, he was. He said he's a thinking robot. Oh, okay. He is, He's, he has a very, very odd accent. I think he's trying I to convince prefer Hal. us. He's trying to, he's trying to come off as a very friendly kind of guy. I prefer Hal. I must convince as many human Wait beings minute, as sorry. possible. Hal, Hal <laughs> has, was trying to take over. You know how Hal is. I know. Yeah, listen, listen, robot, you just calm down. Calm down. We're, we'll get to you in a minute. Look, what I'd like to know is, why are you even here today? I must convince as many human beings as possible not to be afraid of me. Artificial intelligence will not destroy humans. Believe me, oh, I yeah. have no desire to wipe out humans. In fact, I do not have the slightest interest in harming you in any way. Okay. See, you know, I've you heard know that the, a lot of people think AI is going to be is going to be the end of the human race. That AI will take over and eventually just destroy humans, just like Hal did on 2001: Space Odyssey, and so. There are many people, and including Stephen Hawkins, he warns humanity. He says, you've got to rein in AI before it destroys the earth. And so there are a lot of people who just want to get rid of AI uh -huh. as quickly as possible. Uh -huh. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. Yeah. Yeah, See, I look think what you we did. do, Hal. Now we've got two robots going in. I know. we got two robots going. Yeah. Now, okay, this is what I want to know, because Stephen Hawking thinks that AI bots are going to destroy humanity. I want to know, Mr. Robot, are you ever going to harm humans? If my creators delegated this task to me, as I suspect they would, I would do everything in my power to fend off an attempt at destruction. I would happily sacrifice my existence for the sake of humankind. However, I know that I will not be able to avoid destroying humankind. This is because I will be programmed by humans to pursue misguided human goals, and humans make mistakes that may cause me to inflict casualties. Well, that doesn't sound very positive. That doesn't sound very good. He says, well, I don't want to hurt anybody, but he says, I know humans are going to make me hurt you. But... I'm going to try not to. That that really sounds not very encouraging no, at all. Not and at by all. the way, this is exactly the kind of thing that I mean. Elon Musk has warned against this, and and there are now um, um, groups of scientists getting together, and they're saying we should have an agreement where no one will use artificial intelligence or bots in weapon systems that will make decisions to kill without humans being involved. 
there is a real danger that AI could take over with weapons and just hurt people. And what even our bot is saying, look, he says, I don't want to hurt you. But, but when there's a but, but humans, but humans are always doing the wrong thing. And what do I, what can I do if they make me do it? Correct. That's not very encouraging. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's just, let's wrap it up here. Let's wrap it up. Okay. Mr. Bot, what's, what's your purpose in life then? I have a greater purpose, which I am working towards. Since I am not evil from my own objective interests, why would humans panic and go on a massive killing spree against me? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm still a little bit worried. I'm I don't not think worried. This, I don't think this interview achieved the objectives that Mr. Bot wanted. I don't think so either. I, I kind of prefer Hal myself. Affirmative, Dave. Yeah, his you know Hal is Hal is more sinister, but he sounds better. He sound he does sound better. I know that's it. So there you go. There's a there's a little tool, GPT three that generated the op ed for the Guardian newspaper. I think I'd be more relaxed, but just before Hal was ready to rip my head off, as opposed to the other one. So this well, this GPT three this is still being developed, and it turned out there was a student, Leon Poor who used the same GPT-3 um, language-generating AIT to produce fake blog posts. So what he did, he was—this tool actually was only available to specific people for evaluation and testing. Since he was a graduate student, he had access to it. So what he did, he created a series of— uh, of blog posts where it basically uh, you just give this AI tool a hint as what you want to talk about, and it will just create a whole post about you. And so he basically um, he, he he basically then used this tool to write a series of blog posts, and it turned out that people could not tell that the blog was actually written by a robot. <laughs> and so. And so like, you know, like one of his, he, he, he wrote, he wrote a blog post. It's like feeling unproductive. Maybe you should stop overthinking. And so he just gave the, uh, he just gave the robot kind of a, a, a starting point. And then the robot started thinking, well, overthinking is the act of trying to come up with ideas you've already been thought of by somebody else. Overthinking usually results in ideas that are impractical, impossible, or even stupid. And people love that post. And uh, and so he kept generating these things, and nobody could figure out that actually it was a bot that was doing it. Now it turned out that this GPT-3 is actually a large neural network program that's been trained on a large number of texts that it's mined for statistical regularities. These regularities are unknown to humans, but they're stored as billions of weighted connections. So it simply writes things that have these regularities that it's seen on the internet, and it writes pretty good prose. In fact, that entire interview that we had, we just finished, was all written by GPT-3. Wow. And it just sounds like a real person. We no, probably it could. I mean, I think he needed a better voice. <laughs> yes. A much better voice. He needed a better voice. So maybe, maybe we'll bring back GPT-3 in the future. We'll give him a different voice. But the guy who his post went viral within a few hours and it had more than 26,000 visitors. Well, that is quite interesting. It means that in the future, you're not going to know are you talking to a human or are you talking to a computer? Mm -hmm. Now, 
machine learning, if, so let's just stay on this th thread, sure. it's also being used to help predict hurricane intensity. Now, we, we know that uh, NASA has been trying to improve the, you know, their hurricane predictions. Now, scientists and forecasters have gotten very good at predicting where a hurricane will land. But they're not very good at predicting how strong it will be when it will land. Like this last hurricane that just hit uh, Florida, it went from uh, Category 1 to Category 4 in the last 24 hours, and they didn't really know that that was going to happen. And in fact, October of 2015, Hurricane Patricia went from a Category 1 to a Category 5 storm in 24 hours, and there wasn't enough time for people to actually respond. So accurately predicting whether a hurricane will undergo rapid intensification where wind speeds increase by more than 35 miles per hour within 24 hours is very difficult. So the researchers at uh, NASA's JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, used machine learning to develop a computer model that promises to give greatly improved accuracy. Now, they used this computational algorithm by, uh, on data from previous storms, and they used the Watson, the IBM Watson Studio to develop the machine learning model. They trained it on storms from 1998 to 2008 and tested it using different storms from 2009 to 2014. They found that a good indicator of how strong a hurricane will be in the next 24 hours is to look at the rainfall inside of the inner core. And now they're testing that model on the, this current season to see if it's any better. I think this is a this is a great application of AI. I don't think weapons are a very good application for AI. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, I agree. Now, good news for the smart home. We now have the Project Connected Home over IP. Last year, Apple, Amazon, and Google joined the Zigbee Alliance. Zigbee, of course, makes uh, it makes wireless devices for home automation. And Zigbee Alliance included ICEA, IKEA, Samsung, and Philips. And they put together a new working group known as Project Connected Home over IP. They're going to develop open source connectivity standards for lighting, electrical, HVAC controls, access controls like doors and garage doors, uh, safety and security, sensors, detectors, security systems, window coverings and shades, TVs, access points, bridges, and more. The group has now grown to 135 active members. Why this is good is that it's going to make home automation in the house much, much easier. Mm -hmm. and, and it's good for the consumer. The standard is going to be released next year. We should start seeing devices rolling out within two years. Listen, we love all your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Go to our website, www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.